What's up, everyone? It's State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Benjamin Klon. I'm Alex Sahori. I'm Matthias Brimmer. On today's program, we're talking to Shahid Buttar. He's a legal advocate, a national nonprofit leader, a grassroots organizer, a musician, and he's running to challenge House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for her congressional seat in 2020. Thank you so much for being here, Shahid. So much for having me on, Ben. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Yeah, we're really excited to do this. Uh, so I guess just to get into some questions, uh, uh, this isn't your first time running for this seat. I mean, you, you ran in 2018 and finished second in the Democratic primary with 8.5% of the vote. Uh, so what made you want to run again, and what do you think is different this time around? Good. Thanks for the question. I ran in 2018 not for a political aspiration, but to address a political frustration that's only deepened in the time since. I've said this in other settings. I love San Francisco too much to watch it be represented in Congress by a relative moderate. And particularly in this cycle, having seen Speaker Pelosi concentration camps or impose fiscal austerity rules that the GOP has demanded, and Democrats until her had resisted for a generation, watching her support Trump's foreign policy from Palestine to Mexico, all of these Jews frankly forced my hand. And in terms of what's different from 2018, our 2018 results, we were the second place Democrat candidate behind Pelosi. I was third in the election behind a Republican challenger. I came a thousand votes out of second place after three months in the race uh, without any media attention. I ran on the same platform in the same cycle as Representative Ocasio Cortez. I got as many votes as she did. And I'm back this year to finish the job, having established candidate from the left in the last cycle, having seen the momentum that Bernie and the Not Me Us movement have established across the country, having seen the movement for climate justice assert itself. Uh, and inspiring an entire generation of people seeing the movement for racial justice assert itself and declare that we are done with human rights abuses within and across the and beyond the United States. Uh, having seen our movements uh, grow ascendant, I'm very eager to continue representing them, not just here in San Francisco, but in Washington, D.C. That's awesome. That's great to hear. To it, I, I feel like I rambled there, but there's a thing worth noting, too, that a, a big difference between last year and this year. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um... So, uh, I'm sorry. Were you going to expand on that? Uh, for one data point, last year, just to assess you know, our relative strength from the 2018 to the 2020 campaign, in 2018, we raised just over $60,000 uh, from about 500 people. So far in the 2020 cycle, with a full year remaining before the general election, we've raised a quarter million dollars from over 6,250 donors. So, wow. you know, we're an order of magnitude heavier and broader than than we were a year ago. And I, I look forward to liberating the seat. No, you know, that actually um, goes into, like, expand on my next question. Uh, you know, this is the Speaker of the House. You know, she's a national fundraiser. Uh, you know, that's very, you know, she brags about that. Nancy Pelosi has often bragged about how she is a very, very good fundraiser. Um, I've heard you uh, speak before about, like, a national campaign and, like, what uh, it means for having, to have a national, like, grassroots left supporting uh, your campaign because this is, like, so important, right? So, uh, could you speak on that a little bit? Like, why should people in Michigan uh, know? about your campaign and care about it? 
folks in Michigan, I think, and frankly, everywhere else in the country uh, might care about our race is because the incumbent that we're challenging is the leading corporate Democrat. As the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, for better or worse, has been among the chief obstacles, impediments to a progressive vision, impediments to a progressive vision on climate justice. You know, she's uh, opposes the Green New Deal. While she did allow the creation of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, she uh, refused to allow it to have policymaking authority or subpoena power. Uh, progenitor Representative Ocasio-Cortez off the committee. She opposes universal single-payer health care. And as the Speaker, she can prevent any of these proposals from coming to the House floor, which is to say she is in a position to be a gatekeeper for our progressive aspirations. And in that position, having served for 30 years, as a gatekeeper, not to uh, and and ex- that is to say, excludes not the conservative human rights abuses that we all oppose, but as a centrist speaker, she has been opposing the left wing of the party, the flank that is trying to meet the needs of the future, the flank that's trying to meet the needs of working American people, and the side that's been clamoring for executive accountability. You know, I've seen her. One of the very first jobs of Congress is to check and balance the executive branch, and while she's recently shown up for impeachment. It took her forever, and frankly, the impeachment inquiry is so limited. I fear that it is set up to fail, and I'm happy to, you know, address the further dimensions of that issue. But uh, I, I see a great many uh, vulnerabilities uh, in the incumbent, and I think if we, the movement, not me, we, our campaign, but if we, the movement, are able to rest free this particular congressional seat, I think it will send because of who we're, we would replace. I think it will send. A signal across the body politic. You know, the squad, for instance, in the House is a collection of inspiring color. I aim to join them. And in the struggle to battle the party center to advance an agenda that meets the needs of working Americans and future generations, I'm very eager to back them up. So, Shahid, um, in your state of California, uh, well, it's it's on it's on fire. Um in an attempt to prevent more fires from starting, the privately owned utility giant PG&E is cutting off power to millions of residents, and this has led to many people calling for privately operated utility companies like PG&E to be brought under public ownership. Do you agree with that strategy? I do, absolutely. I mean, public ownership of utilities is necessary to ensure a whole bunch of things, and I appreciate you raising this. PG&E has, on more than one occasion, demonstrated at least negligence, if not outright malfeasance. And in the past, it's gotten public bailouts, and those bailouts haven't gone to the safety and maintenance work required to prevent these wildfires from happening. And at the end of the day, as long as there is a profit motive not only in this industry, but in many others. Weapons manufacturing is a good example, where fossil fuel extraction is another, where we incentivize behavior that is bad for people. And instead of doing that, I would like to see us nationalize industries that prey on the public to ensure that they're, for instance, in the fossil fuel context, not overproducing, to make sure in the uh, weapons context, you know, that they're not lobbying for war. (laughs) And here in the in the utility context to make sure that they're doing the making the investments required to make sure that we can enjoy uh, clean, safe, and affordable energy. 
I've spoken uh, before on this podcast about how Nancy Pelosi has had to course correct a couple of times after infighting with the squad. Uh, first, she sabotaged coverage of the Democrats' first House resolution because she wanted to condemn Ilan Omar for anti-Semitism. Uh, she was forced to walk that back. And then she claimed that the squad was just a few votes, and that opened the door for the Trump go back to you came uh, to where you came from comments, uh, for which he basically justified by saying that they hated Israel. Um, even if you were to beat Nancy Pelosi, I believe that the Democratic establishment and the right wing will continue to use Israel-Palestine as a wedge against progressives. Uh, with this in mind, what are your thoughts on coalition building for a just solution in Palestine? And do you believe, like I do, that it is becoming a strategic loser to un unconditionally support the Israeli occupation, as evidenced by Speaker Pelosi's mistakes? So I'm, I'm very much a supporter of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement because I put human rights before the interests of our neo-imperial military-industrial complex. And there's never been a war that Nancy Pelosi hasn't voted to fund. Um, she's on the record insulating the CIA for human rights abuses, so it's no surprise to me that she has turned a blind eye to the human rights abuses of other proxy powers that we support. Um, as to whether or not, and the second part of your question was really about how does the American body politic view the human rights abuses that the state of Israel has long practiced and continues to practice everything from collective punishment, ecocide, uh, you know, the whole range of uh, abuses, you know, the um, denial of uh, ancestral rights. You know, and, and I would particularly point to the uprooting of thousand-year-old olive trees as an offense. You, know, you asked me maybe— 10 minutes ago, why would people in Michigan care about our race? Similarly, you know, this kind of speaks to why people anywhere should care about the actions of the Israeli military and the IDF. It's not just the case that Palestinians are forced to endure collective punishment and uh, you know, endure restrictions on their right to travel. It is also the case that you know, trees, which are a shared cultural legacy, are being uh, uprooted. We're talking about water in the desert being apportioned off and controlled. And then to you know extend this even further, not only is there an ecological dimension here, but when we look at the downstream impacts of Israel's human rights abuses, they often implicate U.S. police departments, which is to say our military aid to Israel effectively enables a human rights abuse laundering machine. Mm. And many of the tactics and training used by the IDF, end up on U.S. streets. And when we in the Movement for Black Lives find ourselves challenging police violence, often the training on the other end of that process, you know, that encourages, for instance, cops to shoot someone until they stop moving, uh, you know, that's how people end up getting shot 20, 30 times by cops. You know, that training is straight out of the Israeli military. And which is to say, we all have a stake in this issue. And I think increasingly Americans recognize that we do better. We, not just in the United States, but we as a species do better when we in the United States support human rights. Uh, do you believe in a one state solution or do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that? I do support the right to return. All right. That's great. So for, for just a moment, uh, I'd like to turn to the presidential race. Uh, you know, <laughs> for some reason, there, there still seems to be a lot of people who view Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as more or less the same. So I'd like to get your thoughts on how you differentiate them. They're certainly very different, though. I would say a, couple, well, a whole bunch of things here. The first is that 
Bernie is a visionary and a longstanding participant and supporter of social movements. When there was a movement to try to stop the war in Vietnam, he was there. When there was a movement to try to extend civil rights, he was there. He showed up. He was a participant in the social movements. He's been right and ahead of history for 50 years. Liz Warren is very different. You know, she was not a member of those movements. She wasn't a participant in those movements. She was alive. That was not how she spent her time. Well, she, now, was a, she was a Republican her, up, in, up until uh, a couple indeed, decades ago. Right. Not only was she alive and not participating, if you believe her words, she was sort of like disconnected, kind of like, you know, the sort of Republican that people or, or the sort of Democrat that people are when they don't really care, but they just check a box. But there's a couple of holes in the, uh, well, I don't want to take a sharp elbow here. I want to get to where I was getting at. Um, you know, Liz Warren's path to the Senate, I think, is underappreciated by many Bernie supporters. And I want to explain it in terms that might help depict why she remains very different from Bernie and, you know, not my preferred candidate. I'm in, I'm all Bernie all the time. Uh, there is, I think, a strategic opportunity for the movement beyond the election to narrow the race to Bernie versus Liz to then allow the electorate to be radicalized by that debate. The key to that strategy is to knock the centrists out first. So my main take mm. on Liz Warren is that we who support Bernie should treat her and her supporters like allies instead of enemies until we knock the centrists out, and then we can have our intra-left fight. Now, to unpack that, her path to the Senate, you know, she was a uh, you know, working mother who claims to have grown radicalized by what she studied as a scholar of bankruptcy law. And when she was at Harvard Law School proposing the creation of the federal agency to protect consumers from banking predation, she was at the time on the left edge of the party. Uh, you know, it's a reflection of Bernie's success that Liz looks relatively centrist in retrospect because Bernie and the movement uh, that he has helped inspire has so successfully moved the goalposts. You, know, you can say the same thing about Kamala Harris. There are people who thought that she was progressive many years ago before, you know, in retrospect, and especially armed with the power of analysis and her record as the AG here and the district attorney, which was decidedly not progressive. <laughs> Um, mm. And I dare say, in many respects, decidedly yeah. regressive. Um, you know, Bernie has uh, sort of shifted the goalpost. But just to get back to, to Liz's path of the Senate, she was denied by the Senate Republicans the opportunity to lead the agency that she helped inspire, that she effectively created. So she said, OK, she went back to Massachusetts, removed one of them, replaced them, and then came back to the Senate and was like, yeah, how you like me now? And, you know, that I wish, frankly, that her campaign talked about that more because it demonstrates that she she does have a great deal of acumen. I think she's very committed to working people. What I don't see from Liz is the the, the history of commitment to the movement that no one like Bernie has, or that no one has like Bernie. Sure. Um, and that's not to mention her awful, god-awful foreign policy. Yeah, her foreign policy is, frankly, you know, as neoliberal as Clinton's would have been. And, and that's one of the principal reasons, well, that and the longevity of his commitment to the movement that I'm, um, you know, so supportive of Bernie Sanders. But I will say, just to go back to, the, you know, what I mean to be my, my overarching point there, I think the left is served by detente between the Warren and Sanders camps, because the chance for the two of them to be the voices on the Democratic field over the course of the spring could be a once-in-a-lifetime chance, frankly, bigger than any election. 
because it could transform the American electorate. No one in America outside the ranks of um, you know, people who already support them have frankly heard their ideas. Their, their ideas are, particularly Bernie's, are transformative. And when the voice against Bernie is not, you know, the guy in the clown show, but Liz, who basically is going to take all of Bernie's proposals, water them down, and then create sort of like, you know, this is her MO at this point, uh, proposing softer versions of Bernie's policies. That's a win for the movement because it indicates consensus in the vector. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize victory when we have it. And if Liz and 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 Bernie are the nominees, or at least the last two standing for the nomination, that is a win regardless of the outcome for the movement. I do think Bernie's the best position to win the election. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I wanted to ask, um, with big tech encroaching on San Francisco so heavily, what do you want to see happen to regulate these companies that are creating wealth out of seemingly thin air? Well, it's definitely not thin air. Unfortunately, a lot of the disruption that we see coming out of Silicon Valley comes at the cost of people's jobs. Um, What I'm particularly concerned about with respect to big tech, maybe let's break this down into three arenas. One is privacy and sort of widespread disrespect for it. Uh Another piece is empowering users. And I want to map that specifically to data interoperability. And then the third uh, is about antitrust analysis. Let's just walk through those. Privacy. You know, companies have been committed to many companies, not all of them, but Facebook comes to mind as, you know, basically running on an advertising business model predicated on corporate surveillance. That might seem innocuous if your only lens on that is that you're getting people products that they're more likely to like. But when you think about the history of government suppression of dissidents or minorities and government co-optation of private data, which can enable that kind of discrimination, it takes on a very different lens. Add to that, one dimension of the Snowden revelations was the uh, growing awareness that what the government can't take from companies through a legal front door, it takes through a backdoor, right? The government, the NSA in particular, is hacking all the major companies at the same time as going to their legal departments. All that is to say the corporate surveillance model places users at risk, not just for their financial data, but it places them at risk of losing their speech and their autonomy because vulnerable people, the reason we have respect for anonymous speech in our constitution is to protect vulnerable people and enable them to speak. And that's what we are losing in this era of big tech ubiquitous data collection. Second, thinking about uh, particular data interoperability. Platforms often uh, play the game where they it's it's they play the game where they attempt to addict their users to their platforms and then monetize their users by squeezing them. Mm. And you know, Facebook's a good example of this, the shifting goalposts that it's had with respect to privacy standards over the years. Um, and the only reason they're able to get away with this is because users aren't always able to migrate easily from one service to another. 
And there are plenty of competing services. There are plenty of open source alternatives, for instance, even like Twitter and Facebook, right? These social media behemoths. But one of the things that keeps people from adopting them is the inability to port data from one platform to another in a format that enables interoperability. The transaction, pardon me, the transition cost is so high that it effectively constrains consumer choice. Uh, I would like to have a to see not only legal requirements for privacy of the sort that have already been enacted in Europe, here in California. I would also like to see a requirement for data interoperability to put users in control of their own online experience. Finally, with respect to antitrust, uh, I would like to see federal antitrust regulators show up for work again. They haven't in about 20 years. The you know everything from structural remedies to recognizing harms to consumer welfare beyond price. I'd like to legislate new antitrust laws to extend the reach of antitrust law into new arenas, namely political markets. We could talk about that for a while and what that means for money and politics or the two-party duopoly. Uh, I also want to particularly legislate a way to rescind the statutory antitrust exemption enjoyed by sports leagues that uh, deny rights to their players and workers. Uh, so a whole bunch of things under the antitrust arena uh, that might be interesting to talk about. But I hope that gives you a flavor of my approach to, to big tech. Absolutely. So the next topic I want to turn to is uh, police brutality. I mean, which has I mean, it's it's been an issue, you know, since uh, police mm. have been a thing in, you know, in America. Uh, I mean, I think personally they're the policing as an institution is really just a function of a white supremacist state. Uh, but, you know, there's been a lot of debate uh, over the last several years on how to hold them accountable. Um, I'm just curious, uh, with your vision, like, where, what do you see as the role of policing in America? A whole bunch of things I'll say there. Let's start with this. I'll answer it in the negative. A few things that we use police for today that I want to not use police for any longer. One of those is mental health care crisis delivery. <laughs> right? Yeah, we have enabled one of the vectors fueling the police violence crisis is the erosion of support services with people for people with mental illness. Um, One reason Medicare for all, I think, is going to be intersectionally helpful. And people think of it as socialized medicine. It is. It also is like a homelessness prevention device. It's a mental health care delivery service, right? And that can particularly prevent cops from being called in crisis situations mm-hmm. where their particular training is especially not suited to the need. Um, other examples, addiction. You know, we treat addiction like a crime. And, you know, frankly, to the extent we treat it like anything, it should be a public health issue. I frankly would like to see people be allowed to make their own choices. But, um, you know, when we when we look at uh, the failed and racist war on drugs, it presumes to place police between people and their own cognitive states, which is frankly preposterous, uh, not to mention a crucial lever for the system of mass incarceration that we've allowed to, that incumbents like Nancy Pelosi have allowed to be built, not only squandering our public resources, but doing it in a way that systematically undermines human rights and creates racial caste systems. Um, So I'm very eager to dismantle mass incarceration. I think one of the crucial ways to do that is to legalize cannabis across the country. Here in California, we have access to legal weed. 
in many parts of the country, it continues to be a pretext for cops to shake down young people, to search people, to detain them, to arrest them, to get them permanent records, to deny them student loans, to kick them out of public housing. And many of these penalties end up being effectively lifelong. And Frankly, it's absurd. Um, could you tell? I also see, could you tell ahead. our listeners a little bit about the three strikes laws in California? The three strikes laws uh, basically were sentencing enhancing provision um, uh, provisions that allow people to be charged automatically. Uh, very long sentences is like twenty five years to life mm-hmm. for third offenses even without regard to the circumstances surrounding their offenses. And like one of the keys here to recognize is, and this is something that the incumbent in the seat I'm running for, Nancy Pelosi, has been unfortunately sadly complicit. Joe Biden in particular has been complicit in creating statutes that escalate penalties, creating statutes that uh, deny rights to defendants, basically creating the statutory framework enabling mass incarceration. It's a tool that corporate Democrats have unfortunately um, been entirely complicit in creating. And if you think about the role of judges historically and having an opportunity to consider totality of the circumstances, to um, you know set sentences that were commensurate with the equities instead of being forced um, by a set of statutes that are very rigid, sentencing guidelines, for instance, to to meet out a very harsh, punitive version of justice. The three strikes laws are an epitome of that paradigm. Uh, I'm remembering a case when I was in law school 20 years ago involving, and if I remember correctly, this, this sadly upheld the three strikes laws, but um, Luis Andrade, if I remember correctly, was his name, and he was given tw- a 25-year sentence for stealing $100 worth of, $100 worth of VHS tapes. Uh, from a video store. And, you know, that's just absurd. Think about the cost inherent in jailing someone for that long relative to the offense. And it just reflects that we're more committed, or at least have been historically more committed to retribution than to rehabilitation. Uh, And that's among the things that I want very much to fix. I'd love to talk about Chase and Boudin at some point, if that, if there's a space for that. We have a district attorney candidate here who's up for election in a week and a half. Oh, yeah. I think uh, Bernie just endorsed him, didn't he? He did just yesterday. What what is it about his uh, about his candidacy you like? So I haven't Chase really heard is, much about him. Yeah, Chase is awesome. Um, he is a uh, he grew up with his parents incarcerated, so he's experienced the criminal justice system from mm. the standpoint of somebody impacted by it. He's worked for ten years as a public defender. And he's uh, been a pioneer in the development of alternatives to incarceration, like um, restorative justice. And uh, he's, you know, very committed to prosecuting killer cops. He's committed to, uh, you know, trying to find solutions for public health crises that don't involve police. He's the latest in a series of prosecutors. Larry Krasner in Philly comes to mind, Wesley Bell in St. Louis. Tiffany Caban was almost one in Queens after Mm. her election was unfortunately flipped. But there's a movement across the country to dramatically change the prison industrial 
policing slavery complex, not through legislation, which is what I'm auditioning to do. And if I'm successful, I'll be part of a growing body of people that want to establish a consensus on changing the law. What Chasa and Larry and Wesley and, you know, hopefully Tiffany and another cycle will be able to do is as the local chief, chief executives of their respective criminal justice systems, they will be able to unilaterally do what I and other policymakers will require a consensus to achieve. Mm -hmm. Now, the downside is that theirs might be limited because if they get replaced in an election, their reforms might not stick because they'll be at the policy level instead of the legal level. So Congress is a longer, more durable game, but it is a longer game, and this is a crisis. And I'm very eager to support uh, candidates for district attorney around the country who are willing to put justice before uh, retribution. Is uh, Chase a DSA uh, candidate as well? He was not endorsed by DSA because DSA uh, has a categorical position not to endorse district attorneys given their structural right. role mm-hmm. in the system. That makes uh, sense. But that notwithstanding, I'm very proud to have been, you know, endorsed by DSA myself, and I'm I'm very uh, proud to show solidarity with Chesa, as well as there is another DSA endorsed candidate here, Dean Preston, who's going to be uh, our next District Five supervisor on the Board of Supervisors. He's a tenants' rights advocate. You know, while we're talking about DSA, yeah, we first uh, met at the DSA convention uh, this year. Uh, like many chapters across the country, uh, Lansing DSA is supporting a member for public office. Uh, can you speak a little bit on how, uh, like? the DSA in San Francisco fits into your campaign and uh, what is your coordination like? Uh, What have you guys learned so that other chapters can try to replicate what works and not make the same mistakes? I appreciate that. You know, we just got the endorsement about a week ago, so I'm not so much in a position to speak uh, from a historical standpoint as to what's worked just because we've really just begun. Um, But I've I've been a DSA member uh, for a year and a half. And, you know, the work I've done in DSA is very direct action and mutual aid focused. Um, We had a campaign to challenge the PG&E bailout and seek the nationalization of the utility company, which we were talking about just about 20 minutes ago. That's been a DSA campaign I've been active in. We've had a campaign to unionize the first craft brewery in the United States. And we did that together with our labor committee. Uh, we've been, um, uh, active and not so much me, but other parts of DSA have been active in providing mutual aid to unhoused folks in the community, really presenting stark tensions within the crisis of capitalism because the city's department of public works and police department have turned around and seized many of those donations. And these are like, you know, camping equipment, tents, blankets, um, no good reason to seize these things as contraband, you know, really reveals policing as harassment. Another, you know, policing in the service of gentrification is another thing I would like to take away from police, right? And that's attended to creating a right to housing. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. I've gone and confused myself as to where I was, where I was headed. <laughs> we were just asking about, you know, about, uh, you know, your involvement with DSA and how they relate to your campaign. Yeah. I'm very inspired by DSA. You know, I, I think of it as a, crucial leg of the stool to rebuild a functional democracy in the United States. And I I see a great deal of vision. I've learned a lot from uh, my uh, exposure to not just my allies and comrades here in San Francisco, but around the country. I think the vision of placing people at the center of our social institutions instead of on the periphery to make capital serve people instead of the other way around. Uh, you know, that's, that is a simple, 
call to moral clarity, frankly. And I see DSA presenting that question in a range of ways across the country, everything from the break-like clinics that have been happening in the justice committees uh, around the country, including here in SF. Um, with respect to our campaign, I can't really speak very much to how DSA is supported, only because we were just endorsed last Wednesday. So the you know, the chapter hasn't, frankly, had a chance to do much for me yet. But we do have many supporters from across the chapter who have long been part of our volunteer base and our donor base. Um, I would just say that those are people plugging in as socialists rather than DSA as DSA. But I'm looking very forward to the organization and the network support. That's awesome. Uh, well, Shahid, we know you got to get going soon, but I think Matthias had had uh, one other question. Yeah, so so you're a musician, right? I am. Yeah, I'm a yeah. DJ, singer, I, hand drum. I was just listening to your to your mix to your mixes. Um, what is what is the most obscure group that you listen to right now that you like? The most obscure? It, it just, it just go, go right on into the deep cuts. Uh, there's a guy, Ross Couch, who's a house producer that does a lot of like social justice themed, groovy, funky, jazzy house music. Okay. I like his tracks a lot. Um, um, my man, Mac Vaughn in the East Bay, uh, puts out some, you know, on the, like four on the floor, thumping kind of late night. Um, oh, oh, hell yeah. Big beats. Yeah. Those, okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, to be frank, in terms of who I follow now, it tends to be at the level of Cruz. There's a uh, there's a, a guy here in San Francisco, Atish, A-T-I-S-H. I like his beats a lot. They tend to be minimal, ethereal. But the Cruz here, uh, Pink Mammoth is a funky house crew that I used to perform with back in the day. I've been on the mic with um, Opulent Productions in San Francisco recently for a while, for about five years. And uh, at Burning Man, I was one of the resident DJs for a camp associated with a major soap company. Oh, hell yeah. I'll leave unnamed because it's decommodified. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've had a, a lot of, um, maybe I'll say this with respect to the music, there's both, you know, DJing is, has been an outlet for me in some ways to, and, and my music tends to be very political. The original tracks that I produce have been much more in line with my ultimate, um, or let's say original vision as a musician, which was very much to create, pro-people liberatory propaganda, you know, like my songs like Ferguson to Jerusalem yes. or NSA yes. versus USA are basically like documentaries. And, you know, when I've had a chance to like make music videos, the music videos, particularly NSA versus USA, it's basically like a short mini doc meant to be like a hip hop history lesson to connect the Snowden revelations to the FBI plot to King, kill Dr. King, you know, and then stretching back Hell over yeah. time to the Pomeranes. Hell, yes. yes, that's fucking that's sick. Funny. I got some required viewing when I go back home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, you asking me before about policing and Israel? And so on that, I almost wanted to say, just listen to my song. I have a song, Ferguson to Jerusalem, which unpacks the international intersections between police violence from one theater to the other. And yeah, that like how I wanted to help the movement. Like know, the, the, the video is on Twitter of, you know, like Palestinian uh, activists showing the Ferguson protesters how to like uh apply uh treatment to themselves from tear gas was yeah. like incredible and one of like the biggest uh sticking points i think that's like a big reason why uh 
you know, like things have really changed on that issue. Um, I think Ben uh, actually wants to ask you just one more question, if that's all right. Sure. Uh, you know, you're you're obviously running your campaign in the same spirit, in the same movement as, you know, Bernie and AOC, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, you know, the, the folks who have been leading the grassroots electoral movement against the political and economic establishment. So we were just curious ab- about, like, how involved or connected you are with these folks and other leaders in the movement. So to the figures themselves, not very. Uh, we'll say the three of Bernie's surrogates have endorsed us, as well as several grassroots networks. Oh, yeah. Linda Sarsour endorsed, endorsed you, right? Yeah. She, Linda uh, endorsed me. I've known her for about 10 years. Dr. Cornell West has endorsed us, as has nice. Sean King. Yeah. And, uh, Holy yeah, shit. I'm excited to receive each of their endorsements. And then People for Bernie, Bay Area for Bernie, and Bets for Bernie, they've all endorsed us. Um, in the 2018 cycle, I was endorsed, and I will again be endorsed by the San Francisco Bernie Crafts and Progressive Democrats of America. They haven't yet turned their attention to our race since there's that first election involving Chase and Dean that's happening in a week and a half. Sure. But I'm looking forward to securing those organizations' endorsements, and hopefully they are revolution endorsement, and, and hopefully Bernie's himself. Uh, and we do have a couple events coming up in D.C. and New York, and the one in New York happens to be supported at least by— uh, mutual supporters of our campaign, and uh, at least one of the folks that you mentioned. And uh, I'm eager to meet other people within the network of folks who uh, have helped bring the progressive revolution uh, to not just here in San Francisco, but around the country. I'm very eager to be uh, to join them in Congress and to continue clamoring for the future and to defend it from the failures of our corporate past. Have uh, just have justice Democrats uh, reached out? You know, they have not. Uh, and I've, I've reached out to them. Any number of people have nominated us. My analysis of their um, disinterest in our race to this point is simply that they have not wanted to poke a bear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're so closely affiliated with Representative Ocasio-Cortez that they have made the calculus that if they don't um, antagonize Pelosi, that it might create space for people in the squad to operate. Now, the hole in that analysis, unfortunately, is that Speaker Pelosi hasn't proven terribly willing to accept that detente. So even though Justice Democrats and maybe some of the others have not necessarily uh, seen fit to enter this race, um, she, Speaker Pelosi, has remained and proven, as one of you noted a few minutes ago, entirely too willing to go on the attack. And I do hope every time that she goes after the squad, uh, it does make me uh, hope that some of the surrounding networks, including Justice Democrats, um, you know, might make a different calculus, recognizing that uh, the attempts to de-escalate uh, the battle between the center and the left haven't been met with uh, commensurate receptivity, let's say, by our uh, the institutional actors who we need to replace. She's she's self-impeaching. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can we say something about that really quick? I yeah, absolutely. Sure Go ahead. You know, so not only did it take Pelosi nine months after becoming the speaker to show up at all for impeachment, and that Thank was nine you. months when I was pounding the drum repeatedly saying we must impeach this president, if only because— if we don't, and every ground that we don't impeach him for becomes a tacit invitation for more in the future, and particularly the emoluments clause, mm-hmm. these are the, mm-hmm. the constitutional violation on self-enrichment at public expense, 
The president has been up to his neck in emoluments clause violations since the first day he took office, and it doesn't take a detailed investigation. All the facts are in the public view. Uh, what it particularly the reason emoluments are so crucial is because there's no issue that enrages the Republican base more than the idea of their tax dollars being co-opted. And corruption is the most uh, it's the most important element of the case for impeachment, precisely because if we don't include it, it then becomes a tacit invitation to future corruption by Trump's successors. And between needing to flip votes in the Senate and needing to send a signal for the future and establish a precedent, I think it's absolutely crucial that the emoluments clause violations be part of the impeachment inquiry. I think one reason they are not, sadly, is because, frankly, uh, corruption is not a strictly Republican phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And absolutely. I think corporate Democrats, I just think about what, what the Ukraine incident was about. It was Trump getting dirt on Biden's son doing what? <laughs> Being corrupt. money wah, off his dad's name. <laughs> right? Right. So anyway, <laughs> all that is to say that corruption is bipartisan and we need to flip the table over. And that's another reason why I'm very eager to liberate this. And, and he resigned from that Chinese company because it was okay. There was, that's, that's, you, you resigned because there's nothing funny going on there. That's right. Shahid, what, uh, what's the date of your primary election? So we're up on uh, March 3rd, 2020, and it's the same day that we in California will be choosing between Bernie and the other Democratic uh, candidates. And on the same day that we're choosing Bernie to be the first Jewish president over Trump, that'll be the same day that I'm up to uh, replace Pelosi. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, Shahid, where, where uh, where can our listeners find out more about your campaign? Yeah, thank you so much. People can uh, learn more, sign up to get involved at shahidforchange.us. And we're on all the major social media networks at shahidforchange. I will note that in addition to the 6,250 supporters we have from every state in the country, we also have an army of volunteers, many of whom, uh, many like hundreds of whom are here in San Francisco, but many of whom are not. And remote volunteers are doing everything from data entry to graphic design, phone banking, social media support. So wherever you're Listeners might be if they're motivated to help uh, replace Pelosi in the House. We're very eager to offer an outlet for their outrage. That's awesome. Ooh. Well, um, Shahid, thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time to talk to us. We yeah, really you've been so it. gracious, so yeah. gracious. Uh, best You're of luck kind. to you. For best of on. luck to you. I appreciate it. Thanks, y'all. Keep up the good work. Thanks. We'll talk to you later. Okay. You as well. Bye. To it. Solidarity. Solidarity. Mm-hmm.